It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, we're going to talk about climate smart eating, and specifically, we're going to tie it back to grains and back to research that's been done and about a product that's on the shelf. And it's going to focus on Kernza, but we'll talk a little bit broader than that. And for this conversation, I want to welcome Tim Cruz, who is the chief scientist at the Land Institute. Tim, welcome. Oh, thank you, Roger. It's great to be here. Tim, I think you have to have a you have a great job. I mean, you're looking at improving Mother Earth. So every day you can get out of bed and head to the Land Institute and and go to work at at discovering how we can do a better job of what we refer to as sustainability or could also be probably applied to biodynamic agriculture and regenerative agriculture and all sorts of descriptions. But you and your team um, are are working at, um, I think, making the world better. Am I am I building you up too much with that? <laughs> well, I, I hope not. Uh, that is certainly what we're we're trying to do, um, and it is it is the case that uh, every day coming in, you feel like you're, um, you know, about to conduct credible research and advance. Um, scientific findings but it's more mission-based it's like a building uh building an apollo or something something that hasn't been done we we believe it's possible there's a lot of indications that it is possible and uh and it's exciting because it because it is very positive in terms of reconciling some of the long-term problems in agriculture kind of once and for all well, we ought to position you a little bit for people because you're in, is it Salina, Kansas? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I actually sometimes mispronounce it as Salina, I think, but it's uh, so Salina, Kansas. Understandable like, in California. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you are on the uh, like 100th meridian uh, there, which kind of has been the dividing line that everything, everything to the east you can start doing some regular farming that needs water and everything to the West. You don't have as much water. And it's uh, I've, I've read about that differentiation, but you just got kind of in the perfect spot to be straddling again, the hundredth meridian. And what you do is significant for the huge areas of the United States and probably applicable to some similar climates and soil types around the world, I would imagine. Yeah, it, it, we're semi-arid, and you're right that just a little bit further east, um, people are, for example, growing corn. Um, a few people do it around here, but it's a little bit tricky. Uh, you, you, it's uncertain every year whether there's going to be adequate precipitation to have corn. Sorghum is more the cereal crop that is dependable in this part of the country. But um, but yeah, we're right. We're we're kind of balanced between arid and and mesic and uh and a little bit colder north quite a bit warmer south it's yeah it's middle america <laughs> so you can walk out and we're, you've got a lot of different programs going on there but you can walk out and you can look around your area and we can think of this area and think of how can we how can we do a better job how we can make it better how can we grow something that actually uh as my cereal box tells me Im improve the climate 
And in fact, Tim, when I called you to see if we could visit, my inspiration was my breakfast. You know, I seldom have that to say, although I've talked to some egg people before and they understood it. They knew I got up and had eggs and wanted to talk to see people about eggs. I actually ended up having for breakfast uh, uh, something from Cascadian Farms is a climate smart Kearns of Grains cereal. And it's the first product I've ever seen that on the very front of it, it says soil health. And, mm-hmm. and it, that's a huge step. Uh, it's so hard for people to try to figure out what they do that's good for the climate and good for their health. But to see a company like Cascadian Farms um, put that on the label, and they've got all kinds of other information. Talk about a, a wave of cascading changes and our do, deeply rooted commitment to sustainability. And then they talk about Kernza as the plant that helps the planet. Um, that's quite a label right there. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we, we get a little nervous about overselling Kernza at this point in time. Um, it's, it's important to recognize that Kernza is a work in progress. And part of what's of interest is where it's going as a crop. Um, it's continually being bred to have, for example, higher yields than it does. It's typically compared to wheat because it is a relative of wheat. Um, it's, it was derived from intermediate wheatgrass, which is again, a relative of wheat, but it's perennial. And Kearns itself is, is what we might call a domestication project. It started as a wild species just a couple of decades ago. And through cycles of selection of choosing the best plants and cross-pollinating them and regrowing them year after year, the wild plant is starting to become more and more a crop species, like the cereals that we're used to eating, wheat and rice and corn. Um, but it's it's in between right now. It's half wild and half domesticated. It's enough of a crop and it's exciting enough uh, to for all of the ecosystem services that it provides that we've we've let it out, and um, a lot of people are working on it partly because of that excitement. Um, it originated here, the project did at the Land Institute, but there's breeders at the University of Minnesota, at the University of Manitoba, in Sweden, um, and uh, it also there's a lot of work being done on agronomy and ecology of this crop but it's right now it's not going to save the planet and in and of itself it will never save the planet but it will contribute to recapturing a lot of the carbon that was lost from agricultural soils when they were converted from whatever the native vegetation was to begin with was whether it was prairie in our part of the world or forest to agriculture. And when those soils were cleared of almost always perennial vegetation, perennials that invest a lot of their energy, a lot of their biomass below ground in the form of roots. And those roots contribute to a a lot of organic matter in the soil under, for example, the prairie or Eastern deciduous forests or coniferous forests in the West or what have you. 
But when that when that uh, vegetation was cleared and uh, we replaced deep rooted perennial vegetation with annual vegetation, we started to reduce soil organic matter levels. And then on top of that, the act of tilling itself, of plowing up the soil and breaking open clods or aggregates of soil, it exposes protected, what had been protected organic matter to soil microbes. They just feast on this organic matter that that previous vegetation had supplied. And those microbes eat it up and they breathe out CO2, just like we do. Um, they're, they're what you call heterotrophs. They eat the soil carbon and breathe, breathe out CO2. And that drops the organic matter further. And so most tilled soils, most cultivated soils that grow annual crops or have grown them for decades anyway, decades to centuries, have lost on the order of 50% of their of their soil organic matter, 50%, 60%, And that's carbon. That's carbon going up into the atmosphere. People think of fossil fuels as being the only source of, of carbon dioxide, and it's not true. Land use has contributed a great deal to the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now, don't get me wrong, we are we positively need to deal with fossil fuel-based carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Uh, we, we, we need to address that first and foremost. But even addressing that is not going to solve climate change. There's enough CO2 in the atmosphere right now from all sorts of, all different sources that even if we go carbon neutral, which is a huge uh, challenge in the next 20 years in our economy based on fossil fuel reduction, we still need to draw down more carbon out of the atmosphere. And this is recapturing some of that soil organic matter that was lost when we first converted to annual crops is the way to do it. When you say first converted, I mean, you're not going back to the beginning of agriculture. Are you just like the industrial age or something, period? No, I, I'm going back to the beginning of agriculture for sure, which wasn't that long in the U.S., by the way. Uh, you know, the tilled agriculture, the plowing of the entire Midwest and California is a relatively recent act. Um, now, other parts of the world, it goes back thousands of years and, you know, 5,000, well, 10,000 years. But... You know, it's interesting because you say that, like in California, for example, we have the the, the big valley, the Great Valley. of, uh, And the first thing that was established in agriculture through the valley was wheat, uh, that before they really had the system to be able to get water, uh, which is mm -hmm. the main issue in California, is getting water to irrigate. So wheat was everywhere. And back in the time of the 49ers and the gold rush and so forth, they were doing wheat. But also, in a lot of those areas of the Central Valley, it's because the uh, the rain might only be fifteen inches a, a year, sure. and sure. you know, on east of you, you go you go up to thirty and forty if you go far enough east. But right where you are, all of this direction, you you get so much country that's got twelve, fifteen, you know, less than twenty inches of rain, which for some reason wheat does okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going to get something to kind of survive without extra water. Wheat's always been a crop that, you know, it's, a, it's the last spot you go before you end up just following the land. It's kind of true here in Kansas as well. I mean, there's a reason wheat is grown in Kansas 
and not Minnesota, even though you get twice the yield per acre in Minnesota as you do in Kansas. But the land value is so much better in Minnesota for corn and soybeans that the wheat has more of a marginal crop gets pushed down here. So it's it kind of plays a similar role in our landscape. Yeah, you were. I want to go back to something you said about the Kernza being um, a wild grass of some sort. Where was it wild? What's the where was the origin? It's Eurasian. It's from the Fertile Crescent in the same region where wheat came from. Um, but it was introduced earlier last century into the U.S. as a forage grass, and is grown as a forage grass in various parts of the U.S. Um, certainly in the uh, in the West, like in Montana, um, it's it's not uncommon. You know, these areas, uh, especially the Midwest, that we have CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program, are, would they be allowed to plant something like Kernza there? Right. Well, uh, intermediate wheatgrass that Kernza is derived from is uh, allowed in CRP. Um, and just recently, the NRCS has a designation where Kernza and other perennial grains will be allowed to be planted in conservation plantings. And harvested for grain as well as forage. Um, it's yeah. Well, that seems big. Yeah, no, that was that was a significant breakthrough, and we're really excited about it. Uh, to have those lands be both protected because of the perennials, but also productive um, is is great. So when you start an area. Uh, with Kernza. Why don't you describe for our listeners, like what has to happen? I mean, you, is somebody going in, disking the fields up? Is it, you know, broadcast drilled? You know, how does, how do the seeds get into the ground? Yeah. Well, the land needs to be cleared either with tillage, uh, as you would traditionally prepare a seedbed, a field for any grain. Um, it can be sprayed if it wasn't organic, um, similar to no-till in the, in the Midwest. And then the currency seed is still quite a bit smaller than wheat, as I was describing earlier. I mean, the yields are increasing quickly in the seed size, but it still remains quite a bit smaller than wheat at this point. And so it's a little trickier to place in the soil, but you do use a seed drill, like, uh, like how you're describing. And um, the establishment year is the trickiest year. Uh, these perennials, because they have smaller seed and because they're still a little bit on, have some of the wildness left in them, um, they may not germinate as uniformly as, for example, wheat. Wheat that's been worked on for hundreds and even thousands of years, and Kearns has been worked on for a couple of decades, like I said. But um, the initial seedlings of Kernza are, are not as competitive with weeds as some annual species. Once it's established, then it's a whole different story. Uh, then you have minimal weed pressure in subsequent years if you have a good stand. If you get a good established stand of Kernza, then weeds are dramatically suppressed and nutrients are taken up extremely efficiently from deep in the subsoil. Um, I mean, in Minnesota, there's incentives to plant Kernza around wellheads where there's been problems with nitrogen fertilizer contamination leaking down into groundwater. 
And uh, the state has recognized that it's just like a nutrient vacuum and pulls that nitrate right out. Um, and so it's extremely efficient at taking up nutrients. Right now, conventional annual grain production loses about 50% of the nitrogen applied on those fields. 50%, that's just the cost of doing business. And it either goes up as nitrous oxide, as a greenhouse gas, or as dinitrogen, just as nitrogen into the air, or it leaches down into the groundwater, like what I was talking about. And in our part of the world, it gets into the groundwater, who knows, it can make it into rivers, all the way down the Mississippi and, and induce things like the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. The dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which happens every year, um, you know, the size of New Jersey, they love that, uh, is caused by the lack of nutrient retention up in Minnesota, up in Illinois, up in Iowa. And if those, if those lands were planted to perennial, you would not have the dead zone. And there's dead zones at the mouths of about over 400 rivers, major rivers in, around the world. Most of them are driven by fertilizer loss to some extent. So, so you know, when you you say that, it feels to me like that's enough reason you should root for this alone. I mean, just for that alone. But, but there's so many other positive stories here. And uh, one thing I was wondering is that when you're dealing with a perennial like this, you didn't have to drill it. So you got a tractor running equipment through the fields and somehow the fields were kind of whether leveled off or cleaned up a little bit prior to it, but you're not doing that stuff every year. I mean, just the pass of, of equipment uh, of in a few seasons, that's going to be huge. You're not using fossil fuels and, and, and the equipment to be able to put it in every year. Right. You're not having to seed it. And like I said, if you get a good stand that is able to suppress weeds, which is common, then you're not having to go out and make tractor passes to spray your herbicides. Um, we're actually developing cropping systems in which we incorporate a legume with Kernza, such as alfalfa. Alfalfa fixes a lot of nitrogen. It pulls nitrogen out of the air. And, and biologically makes it available to the crops in the field. And by planting a field of alfalfa and then cutting strips after two or three years, you front load a lot of nitrogen into that, into that field. And then you can plant Kernza into that background of alfalfa, leaving strips of alfalfa intercropped and, and have a self-sufficient uh, stand. And, and then in that, that case, you don't even have to buy the nitrogen. It's provided with, uh, with biological fixation. And so even if you just plant the two together at the same time, either alfalfa and Kernza or clover and Kernza, you can offset the, the nitrogen requirement um, from either manure or, or synthetic sources with that legume intercropping. And so we're hearing all about uh, the shortages of nitrogen fertilizer with the war in, in UK, Ukraine right now and, um, and you know, Russian, uh, they're not being fertilizer available from Russia, which is a, has been a primary source in Sub-Saharan Africa, especially. Um, 
And the more we can figure out how to provide cropping systems, especially growing cereals, with legume nitrogen fixation, the better. And uh, so we're excited to try to do that in perennials as well. Well, you know, one of the things I wonder about now is the, is this frontier that's in the soil. Uh, much more attention on the role that the microbiome plays. Mm -hmm. So what do those little critters think about Kernza? I mean, so you end up having the, the microbes and the fungi that have to do their job and they're out there like running these little dump trucks, you know, that are pulling nutrients in and put them in the yeah. plant and, and everything. So, so how does Kernza getting along with the, the microbial community? Well, Kernza and perennial grains in general, and I would, and, and perennial forage is also like alfalfa. Since you don't have to disturb the soil every year, you um, have the potential to develop mycorrhizal communities that are far more effective than what are often referred to as kind of weedy mycorrhizae that tolerate a lot of tractor passes and tillage. When you when you bring a disc in and or a plow and disturb the soil, you shred those mycorrhizal networks. You go for periods of time where there's no living roots in the soil for those to feed those mycorrhizae because they are hosted by your crop plants. And so in having perennials, we know this from our colleagues at the University of Kansas, uh, Jim Beaver is a, a wonderful mycorrhizal uh, expert and and um, he's very passionate about them and and he, he and his students uh, have demonstrated how later six how how prairie plants that have been around and not been disturbed for a long time host more efficient mycorrhizae than the weedy ones that occur in highly disturbed soils. So by having perennial crops, and especially if you can diversify those perennial crops, you will establish a more effective mycorrhizal uh, community than, in, than you possibly can in tilled lands. At least that's what we're finding. So as I understand it, like the uh, mycorrhizal fungi and, and it's these as a cluster, it's, uh, it's all around these root bases if they're not stirred up. But then when, when they're doing their job and they're well-established like that, it's it's like they're you know sending out you know microbes fungi and everything they're they're going out and pulling the nutrients bringing them back almost and to pump them into the plant yeah i mean especially phosphorus but other nutrients as well they're kind of extensions of the rooting system yeah. if you will like you're describing and and they have been known to also suppress disease uh, of, of the plants of the crops, and they've also been known to uh, help with drought tolerance. They, it's it's amazing the roles they seem to play. Those yeah. mycorrhizal fungi, and and when I was talking about those aggregates that hold organic matter in the soil, the kind of glue-like substances that come off of mycorrhizal fungi are are known to be very critical in forming these soil aggregates that themselves end up being kind of banks for soil organic matter. And so in pulling that CO2 out of the air with those roots and starting to store in the soil, these relationships with mycorrhizae are, are, are key. So everything we've said so far just sounds all positive. It all sounds great. Um, so there must be some shortcoming when you start getting to uh, either the, the value or the yields uh, compared to, to wheat. Uh, where 
because yeah, otherwise so, everybody would be doing it. Well, here's the thing. I mean, the biggest shortcoming is we don't have perennial crops yet, perennial grain crops. All of the grains that were domesticated between five and 10,000 years ago were annuals, um, at least cereals. Cereals are like the, you know, the grasses, right? corn and hay and, and wheat and oats. Um, and the vast majority of legumes and oilseed crops as well are annuals. And so the challenge is breeding them rapidly enough that we can actually transform agriculture to be perennial in a time frame that's meaningful, facing the climate crisis, facing soil degradation crises on the planet, and a lot of other challenges we're experiencing in agriculture right now, shifting climates, um, resilience to climate change. Um, so there's two approaches to arriving at a perennial grain. One is the domestication that we've just discussed with Kernza, and we're working on an oilseed crop called silphium or silflower right now that would replace sunflower and soybeans. It's a very deep-rooted uh, drought-tolerant perennial. Um, we have a, a legume called sanfoin that could replace lentils and also soy in, in uh, as a plant-based protein. Long-live perennial legume. Um, those are those are these wild species that we're bringing into being crops through domestication, through cycles of breeding. The other approach, though, is to take an already existing annual and cross it with a wild relative. And so we're doing that with wheat itself. Uh, so we have annual durum wheat, which you make pasta out of, for example, and then we'll cross it with currency, with intermediate wheatgrass, and try to bring just enough perennialism into the annual. Mm -hmm. And in that respect, you are able to save many of the traits of the annual crop that have been worked on for, like I said, hundreds of years. Wheat has been worked on thousands. And, um, and so that's called white hybridization. We're doing that with wheat and we're doing it with sorghum. And our colleagues in the Yunnan province of China have successfully achieved a high, very high yielding, perennial rice, comparable to annual rice for four years, two harvests per year. Wow. Um, so eight harvests in a row. And, and it's, it's remarkable. Now, will, um, will genetic engineering be, be useful for, the, for these processes? So genetic engineering has become a, a less understood term, I think, or more or harder to define because there's more tools that people have at their disposal. So we're we're not we're not pursuing genetic modification like GMOs, moving a gene from a fish into a sure. into a wheat. Um, we are positively using genetic tools, and most of those, uh, such as genomic selection, allows us to not only select plants based on how they appear, you know, how individual plants. Um, how productive individual plants are, or you know whether they're diseased or not diseased, what we call the phenotype, how the plants look. But we can actually sample their tissue and look at their DNA to tell us if it, they contain traits that we are interested in. And so this is called genomic selection. And, and you're able to get this, what are called molecular markers to, to in plants DNA, you see parts of the genome that you know 
are associated with something of interest. Yeah. And so we, we, we will plan out 10,000 plants, send leaves off to Kansas State University to have their DNA run, and they send us back the results and say, well, these 2,000 have a trait you're looking for, like larger seeds. Right. The others don't. So we will only plant those 2,000 out in the field. Yeah. Rather than have to plant all 10,000. And believe me, when you're tracking every single plant's yield in a cycle, like literally every single plant, just growing out the ones that you already know are going to be useful makes a big difference. So that that is uh, one example of using modern molecular methods that is not exactly engineering, but it's using our understanding of DNA to greatly accelerate breeding progress. What about CRISPR? Is CRISPR processes useful? We, yeah, it could be. Um, CRISPR, when used as for targeted mutations in, in a plant's genes, um, what, what plant breeders look for Natural. I mean, what plant breeders have looked for for ages is you plant a field of, again, 10, 20,000, 30,000 plants, and you walk out there and you look for a plant that's different. It has a trait, has much bigger seed than all the others. And it might be a trait that is not adaptive to that plant in the wild, but in agriculture, it's very desirable. That's a mutation. That's like one in a million, one in a million plants is going to have a trait that is of interest, a purple bell pepper or something, right? I mean, it, it just, it happens and it's it's a mutation. So you can t- use CRISPR to target a part of a plant's uh, genetic makeup to try to induce more mutations around a trait that might be of interest. Uh, and by trait, I mean, you know, that all the seed matures at the same time. For example, it doesn't mature over five weeks, it matures in one week. Um, Plant breeders have used other methods, excuse me, of what you call mutagenesis on almost all of our crops historically. They either use chemicals or they take seeds and, and apply radiation to induce a lot of mutations. That is non-targeted mutagenesis. And believe me, we eat it every day. Even if you're eating organic crops, you are probably eating plants that have undergone this level of kind of bombardment to induce mutations in that crop species. CRISPR is very targeted. So it's, it's even though it makes people nervous, it's actually far less uh, intrusive and, and more controlled and just better than uh, kind of a whole whole genome mutagenesis like has been used in the 60s, 70s, and 80s on almost all of our crops. People are always surprised to hear that. I mean, I've heard it before. And, and you know, when you know, the people that feel like they're so nervous that they have to look for a non-GMO label, for example, and yet, if you told them that the products they're buying were the way they came up with the variability that the breeders need to work with, it was, you know, radiation or chemicals or something, because you have to have all of this a spread of things to work with. Uh, and um, 
it, it's it's a lot. And when people are kind of mistrustful of uh, processes anymore, it's it's hard to explain all of that. You've done yeah. a really good job of explaining it here, um, but it's it's a it's an uphill climb for people to understand again what plant breeders are are working with. Yeah, yeah. It is. And, and we ourselves are not doing the CRISPR at the Land Institute, but we know people and are, are, there's colleagues in Copenhagen, in Denmark, who are actually working on what you would call domestication traits, mm -hmm. targeting mutagenesis. But then if they find the mutation that they're interested in, if they, if they, if they achieve it with, with CRISPR, then they go into a bank of seeds yeah. and they find that mutation in natural populations. Yeah. yeah. So the CRISPR is a kind of a proof of concept and then they go find it naturally, that exact mutation hmm. in a whole bank of diverse seeds that they have. And it's, so uh, I, it's so exciting. It's, it's really interesting. Let's skip to the end now, the end being a harvest. So you just pull combines out in the field just as if it was a, a wheat field? In the case of Kernza, yeah, it's uh, it's combine. You have to change the settings some on the combine. But yes, basically, it's it's the same. So how would it compare the um, the, the bushels per acre compared to uh, wheat? Right. So, yeah, this is where earlier in the conversation, I was saying that Kernza is very much a work in progress. Um, and so it has um, more than tripled its yield in the last uh, what, 14 years or so because of breeding. But we are still, depending on where it's been grown, um, growing uh, probably 18 to 25 percent of a of a wheat yield it can be higher in some places but that's that would be more typical and again wheat is a pretty high bar uh things like oats and barley have much lower productivities um, the yields are much more similar to kernza in those cases or something like quinoa a relatively recent introduction to the u.s anyway um, and a plant that hasn't received nearly the breeding that wheat has. So Just, wheat, it, wheat has really high yields for what you would call a small grain. And yet our Kernza breeder, who is undertaking these genomic selection or, or, or leading that genomic selection effort, predicts that if, if the improvements stay uh, consistent like they have been, we would be able to achieve something close to the yields of wheat in 17 years. So in the meantime, though, unless you were getting three or four times more per bushel, uh, uh, you know, it's it, it's probably not comparable income for a lot of people. They have to be taking it on for other reasons, uh, you know, including that it's good for the climate and and maybe they have customers that are particularly interested or something like that. So yeah, Roger. I mean, it it there's a it's a complex economic landscape. Um, there it, there is kind of a niche market right now, which is not where we want it to end up, but it will deliver a, a premium because of folks that like to eat climate smart cereal, for example, um, yeah, right. and, and and other crops that are out. Gave them a free commercial today, right? <laughs> um, there's a number of beers out there as well, and 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 products are appearing every day with currency in them. But I, I think it's also important to recognize how 
you know, we were talking about the cost of nitrogen fertilizer right now. If you are not losing half of your nitrogen, then you don't have to buy it. Right. That's right. That's a huge savings right there. Tractor passes. You're not having to pay for that fuel. And then on top of that, there are other uses for Kernza. Um, What's something that we're we're really interested in? Um, You know, intermediate wheatgrass was introduced as a forage grass and is very palatable. And so by doing a, a dual use program where you're able to harvest the grain in the summer and then graze it, in the off season, either in the fall or spring, then all of a sudden the economics start to make a lot more sense in certain parts of the country where you have diversified farming systems with livestock incorporated. So there, there are, there's promise for making this crop economically viable sooner than later for yeah. reasons other than just the hot, the, the yield. Um, well, uh, no, that makes perfect sense. And then the other question I have to ask, is there anything that indicates that nutritionally there's some benefits uh, as far as whether it's nutritionally comparable to uh, wheat or other other staples? You know, uh, right now, because the size of the seed is small and it doesn't have as much of the kind of carbohydrate, most of what's going to be added is is carbohydrates to that seed um, as it increases in yield. Right now, it's pretty high in protein, pretty high in fiber. Um, it has a good taste. People like it. Um, but I wouldn't say that it has an extraordinary uh, food value uh, that, that makes it stand above wheat, for example. Um, it doesn't have the gluten ratio that wheat has. And so it, it doesn't do very well alone for making bread. Um, you want to mix it with wheat flour and 50, 50 works pretty well if you're baking for a leaven product. Um, but something like pizza crust or cereal or beers or things like this, you can do use a hundred percent currency if you want. Um, it, it blends very well with wheat flour. It is not gluten-free, though, so we kind of wish that it either didn't have any glutens or it had all the right glutens, uh, but it's somewhere in the middle. They're complementary, kind of synergistic with wheat, but um, not they don't stand on their own. Have you got some, um, some other prospects that are going to be like Kernza or other, other products that you're working on? Yeah, so again, we, we, have, uh, we are working on wheat not Kernza, but we are, we're bringing some of the genes through cross-pollination into wheat. And so, and that we're making progress there. It's not, it's not ready for showtime, but there are wheats now that have lived for three years here in Kansas. We have a a sorghum um, or Milo it's often called, and and that's a a grain originating from Africa, but uh, people are recognizing it as a a substitute, not a gluten-free cereal. And we have a have made good progress also in perennial sorghum, the silphium oil seed crop, same point legume. These are a, a suite of different types of grains that um, are all in the pipeline and, and in different places. But I think people will be seeing more of them Sooner than later, within the next five years, uh, a number of these crops I just described will start to appear in very early commercial stages. Um, 
is so it the I expectation decided. that we're biperennial? You're coming back every year, but is it every year for three or four years? It's not like native grasses that are there for a thousand <laughs> years, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it for them to be high yielding. Most perennials, and this is true, alfalfa. I was mentioning earlier is a perennial forage, and you know you have a stand of alfalfa for four or five years, and it's ready to turn over. Some will even do it in three years, um, but we're interested in extending that as long as possible for soil health purposes. But um, it depends on the species how long they're going to be productive. This sophium crop persists for quite some time, actually. But Kerns are right now, if we were able to get four or five years out of a stand, that would we'd feel like that was that was pretty good. Well, I, I think it's exciting what you're doing. And, and I'm glad you explained some other things because we know about getting the roots deep in the ground. We're talking about the sustainability of not having so many passes through the land. I mean, it all makes sense. And then especially when you were explaining the other implications of of costs, the fact that it's got lower yield currently than, than wheat's not the telling the whole story. And when we're looking at the high cost of fertilizer, who knows if it's going to get better within the next couple of years. This might be one of those things that uh, the crops like these perennials that you're working on to make a huge difference. I think it's exciting. And, and I'm, I moved to make another commercial on behalf of Cascadian <laughs> Farms just because I like to see companies that jump behind these products a little bit, and it's been hard to find. And I had seen an article that said Whole Foods had this um, Cascadian Farms Climate Smart Kerns of Grains cereal that has soil health and water health on. Hurry while they still have it. They say limited edition, so I'm not sure how long they're going to keep it. Well, they'll, they'll be making it uh, more, I, I, I understand. And 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 I, I do want to also, since we're in the commercial zone, pitch Patagonia Provisions, who was really responsible for getting the Land Institute to go ahead and, and try and commercialize some of the Kernza. And so they've made several beers. They, they have a pasta out right now. Dogfish Head Brewery, in conjunction with Patagonia, has just made a beer um, that should be available nationally. And so there's, there are, there's, I mean, Patagonia deserves a lot of credit also for having advanced this effort. Well, they give me credit. I'll give them credit, rather, for giving me a taste of the beer. I was at Eco Farm, and uh, I think must have been a couple of years ago when we were uh -huh. having meetings in person. And, I, and Patagonia had a had a stand there where they let me sample some of the beer they're making with Kernza then. So I'm. What'd you think? I, I was great. I was great. <laughs> and I have to admit that I, there's, uh, it's, it's hard to find a bad beer, but uh, it was, it was really good. So I, uh, in follow-up, I, I want to ask you, Tim, if uh, people want to, understand more of the things that you're working on or look more into Kernza, plus your other research as well, where do, where's the best place for them to look? Well, certainly the website is, it has a lot of resources, so thelandinstitute.org. And then there's one specifically to Kernza, that is Kernza.org. Quite a bit of information on both of those websites. And we also send out uh, updates, kind of newsletters, quite a bit. And if people uh, wrote us off of that website and said they'd like to join uh, kind of a listserv or email list, we would be happy to send regular updates about progress in, in what we're doing. Um, we, we really appreciate the opportunity to, to spread the word and talk about this work. It's very long-term, takes a lot of patience, uh, but 
you know, uh, the founder of the Lens Studio, Wes Jackson, uh, or co-founder, has famously said that if you're if you're working on something that you can uh, achieve in your life, you're probably not thinking big enough. And, and this definitely falls into that category. So, uh, well, I think we can also tip people off too that if they happen to be driving across the country on Interstate 70 and get the hundredth meridian, uh, go south a little ways, and they can find you. Yeah, we have tours uh at 10 10 or 10 30 on fridays right oh, now but um yeah that would be great we love people to stop by it's uh truly 10 minutes off the interstate off i-70 and so uh yeah it's I, good I, good place to take a break ever so often i i go across country on 70 so i'm gonna i'm gonna stop again sometime so tim cruz uh with the land institute thanks for being on farm to table talk all right. Well, thanks for having me, Roger, and, and take care. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 